In 1983, Heidi Roizen founded a very small software company with her brother Peter. Shortly after, Heidi found herself in Steve Jobs' office trying to negotiate a deal with the infamous CEO. Her company would be distributing a word processing application that had been developed by some of her employees but who were now working for Jobs. It was a complicated situation, but boiled down, the deal was that Heidi's company would do the work, but they would have to pay a royalty back to Jobs' company next computers. In the negotiation, Heidi pitched Steve the standard 15% royalty. He tore up the contract, handed her the pieces, and said, come back at 50% or don't come back. Heidi writes, I was stunned. There was no way I could run my business giving him 50% of my product revenues. I slogged down to my car feeling like I had just blown the biggest deal of my life. Luckily, someone followed her out of the meeting. It was a friend of hers who was working for Steve Jobs, but also working in the background of the deal. And he gave Heidi this advice. He said, make it look like 50%. Figure out a way to make a contract that you can live with that says 50% at the bottom. And that's exactly what Heidi did. She moved figures, adjusted calculations. It was all legal and all above board, but she made the contract say Steve Jobs was receiving a 50% royalty on all the software shipped. So they inked the deal. But later, Steve Jobs would joke that he made more money collecting interest on his bank account than the deal he had forced on Heidi. That's okay. In the end, everybody was happy. The partnership was a success for her company and his. And in fact, Heidi went on to work as a global VP for Apple for a number of years. Now, in our text tonight, there is a tense business negotiation. It doesn't culminate in a mutually beneficial partnership at all. In this new deal between Jacob and Laban, each participant has very different goals. Jacob is trying to build up enough resources to leave Haran once and for all. And Laban, well, he has no interest in letting him leave with his wife's, wives and kids. And so Laban uses his position to not only cheat his son-in-law, but also to try to ensure that Jacob will never have enough resources to set out on his own. It's an ugly situation that deteriorates right from the get-go. Luckily, Jacob has a friend working in the background who has his best interests in mind and shows him exactly what to do. So let's begin at verse 25. We read, After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. After years of passiveness, Jacob becomes animated and decisive once again. It was something about Joseph's birth that seems to have lit a fire under him. Maybe he was worried before that, that without a, a child, Rachel might choose to stay with her family rather than travel with Jacob and the others. We've seen previously that uh, in this culture, even though you know the dads are giving their daughters away and things like that, it seems that the, 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 the ladies have the option to go or not go. We've seen that with Rebecca, and maybe that's what's happening here, that being childless 
and uh, being in this brutal relationship with her sister Leah and then these two maids and all of that. Uh, maybe, she, maybe Jacob is worried that she'd say, hey, I, I don't want to go at all. I'm just going to stay here and play out my string as a spinster in my regular home. But now she has a baby, and maybe that uh, kind of helped him think, okay, she's going to stay as my wife, and I'll be able to move forward. But more importantly, we learn in chapter 31 that Jacob had received a dream from the Lord, and in it God had said directly, get up and go home. Get back to the place where I want you to be. Like the prodigal son, Jacob finally starts coming to his senses, and we can almost hear him saying to himself, man, what am I doing? Uh, This is not my home. I have got to get free. I have got to get back to where I'm supposed to be. Verse 26, Jacob says, give me my wives and my children that I have worked for and let me go. You know how hard I've worked for you. It's clear uh, that he did not feel free to go. He speaks to Laban much like Moses speaks to Pharaoh later saying, let my people go. Uh, The previous agreement that Jacob had made with Laban was finished. It was completed. He had worked 14 years for Rachel rather than for money. Jacob still owned nothing in this foreign land after all that time. Now, try to imagine having the responsibility of providing for four wives and at least a dozen kids, but you have no money, you have no flocks, you have no property, and and really you have no prospects other than getting back to your actual inheritance, which is just waiting for you 500 miles away. Verse 27, Laban said to him, if I found favor with you, stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Laban has no intention of letting Jacob go. In fact, later he's going to angrily insist that Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah and all the kids, he says, they belong to me. They are mine. The women are mine. The children are mine. All of the sheep are mine. All of the goats are mine. He just says it outright, whether it's true or not. And so Laban does everything that he can to keep Jacob from scratching a living together and becoming independent. And he tells us why he's super interested in keeping Jacob around. He says, the Lord has blessed me because of you. Laban had become a very wealthy man thanks to God's blessing, and he had no interest in sort of turning off that tap, right? That mine was still producing as far as Laban was concerned. Now, let's also not forget that Jacob is 100 years old at this point. He's no spring chicken. And so Laban, I mean, he's old too, but Laban is always about nuts and bolts, dollars and cents, how he can best sort of fleece the people around him for himself. And he's probably thinking, I'm already working this old man to the bone. He's got one foot in the grave, probably. If I string him along a little while longer, he'll probably drop dead and I'll have everything anyway, including this big clan of people uh, that are being born, right? Now, notice this about Laban. He's happy to benefit from contact with God, but has no interest in worshiping this God. He's a lying, cheating pagan. Now, your translation may say, I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me, Or it might say, like mine does, that he discovered this information through divination. Now, scholars are divided over exactly how that should be delivered to us, but it is clear that Laban is an out-and-out Babylonian pagan. 
Uh, he has household idols, we'll see later on, ones that he worships. He worships the God of greed. He serves the God of greed. Now, here we see he's happy to have this almighty God of Abraham increasing his flocks, but we don't get to pick and choose which parts of God's presence we want and just ignore the rest, right? So, so Laban is saying, hey, I like having you around because your God seems to enrich me when I have you around. But if that is true, if this God is, has that kind of power and that kind of influence, shouldn't you worry about what else this God wants? And Laban's not worried at all. Oh, I want the good stuff, but I don't care about anything else. I don't care about any of the other commands that this God may have. I assume this God only exists to benefit me, right? And this is an attitude that plenty of people have who are outside the faith. Uh, and I thought of sort of one example. There are right now pundits and debaters out there right now, many of them politically conservative, who talk about the great benefits of a society built on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Hey, I agree, right? Uh, you know, this is the worldview that God has given us, and yeah, we're all for it. And popular speakers like Jordan Peterson or Dave Rubin, for example, will say things like they are convinced that societies run better when they operate under a belief system that stems from timeless, age-old biblical truths. That's an actual quote from one of those guys. But then they go on to say they don't want people to be religious per se, that it's just about the benefits of a moral society. For example, Rubin says individuals can be godless and still be good. Peterson says, you know, if, if you ask him, do you believe in God? His answer, his standard answer out on the internet is it would take him multiple books and lectures to even answer that, begin answering the question, do you, Jordan Peterson, believe in God? Oh, I have to write books and books and books about that. Okay. You know, those guys have some interesting things to say, good things to say. I'm, I'm not necessarily anti those two guys or other pundits like them, but their attitude is very similar to the way Laban approaches God, right? I want the advantage without the allegiance, right? I want the benefits, but don't count on my devotion. I'll sign up for the free grace, but don't talk to me about bowing my knee to the King of Kings, right? And again, Jordan and Dave and the others, they have some interesting things to say. I'm not knocking that. You know, I'm not telling you you can't listen to their podcast or anything like that. But by their own admission, they are concerned with economics and politics and human culture uh, the way Laban was. And as individuals who believe we're hearing from the living God who's given us his living word, who wants to interact with us personally, it's not good enough to just say, well, I want certain parts of what this God has to offer, and then I'm completely disinterested with the other parts of what he has to offer, right? If I was going to give you a piece of cake tonight, right, and I said, the frosting's the best frosting you've ever had, great, I want it. Okay, well, the cake underneath it, you know... You know, don't worry about what the ingredients are in the cake underneath it. You'll figure it out eventually. You know, that would be weird. Uh, and it's even more weird when we're talking about profound eternal issues that have to do with um, our eternal soul and heaven and hell and, and, and what the Lord wants to do in our lives. Verse 28 says, then he said, name your wages and I will give it. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? They've had this talk before. Jacob knows that his father-in-law can't be trusted. 
Notice how Laban always tries to control the conversation. He tries to control the language used. He, he tries to keep navigating and pushing Jacob one way or another. He always tries to keep Jacob subservient and in a position of weakness. And he's been pretty successful at it for 14 years at this point. Verse 29 says, So Jacob said to him, You know how I've served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming, and now when shall I also provide for my own house? So both of these guys acknowledge that God is the one blessing Laban's house. And, and that's true, but it makes it all the more sad that Jacob who knows this and who has had a vision of God and his you know, ladder and the angels ascending and descending. He has the tradition of Abraham and Isaac and all of the things that are wrapped up with that. Uh, it makes it all the more sad to recognize how little interest Jacob has in God up to this point in the story. He's 100 years old. He, he has lived longer than probably almost everybody in this room is going to live, Right? And, and after all he had been shown and all he had experienced and all of the promises and, and, you know, all of the ways God had revealed himself, and even here, yeah, God is blessing you because of me, because God has his hand on my life, yeah, big deal. And he's so disinterested in the Lord. You know, it's the Lord who has reached out to Jacob, not the other way around. The Lord has reached out to Jacob twice in a dream now. We still haven't even seen Jacob pray or worship. Oh, yeah, he made a little rock monument, uh, but that was hardly a moment of great praise or devotion. That was a, okay, oh God, you'll be my God if you do this, that, and the other thing for me. And so here, here's this God who's actively involving himself in their lives. They acknowledge it, but their response is not to realize that something fantastically eternal is happening in their midst, but their response is to bicker and to jostle and to try to figure out who's going to cheat who first. And that is just a sad commentary on the state of their hearts. Verse 31, Laban said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. Uh, so this is not a friendly agreement. Uh, these, these guys are not buddies. It's going to get worse, but they, they're not friends together. Jacob calls out Laban. He says, hey, 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 you're not giving me anything. Don't pretend like you're giving me something and that you're being generous to me because you're not. And we see in the end, it's a pretty hostile agreement that almost has criminality attached to it. Well, it does. He says, okay, if you come, I know you're not going to believe me. So when you come and do a spot inspection of my flocks here. If you find a non-speckled and spotted animal, then you get to treat me as a thief, and, 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 and that's going to be a big problem for everybody. So not a friendly agreement at all. Now, Jacob picked these terms, but they're pretty bad terms, we find. Why did he pick them? He picked them because they were revealed to him in a dream from the Lord, and we find that out in the next, in the next chapter. On the surface, this is a, a, a very bad deal for Jacob. 
You see, speckled and spotted weren't the kind of livestock that were prized or desired. More importantly, they were always a very small minority in any flock. Now, archaeologists have discovered some ancient Babylonian shepherding contracts from this time period and kind of have a sense of how these agreements normally worked. And they found that the regular deal was that the owner would keep 80% of the flock and the shepherd would be given 20% of the flock plus a percentage of wool and dairy products. And so Jacob is asking for much, much less, it seems, even if Laban doesn't cheat him, which he does. So why would Jacob set these terms when he's the one coming to the negotiating table? Well, this is God's idea. It is totally God's idea, not Jacob's. And it reminds us that there will be times when God asks us, his people, to do things that look very foolish in the eyes of the world. But if we're walking by faith, that means we will have to do some things that just don't make worldly sense. If everything we do in life makes regular, conventional, worldly sense, how can we believe that that is a life of faith? that that is a life that trusts God's way, and he says, my ways are not your ways, right? And so that doesn't mean that everything we do has to be strange or opposite world. You know, we don't have to live in the bizarro world, but we are going to encounter times in life where God says, I would like you to do this. And then in prayer, we say, well, God, you know, I'm going to take a bath financially if I do this, or I shouldn't do that because then I won't promote as fast, or it would be better if I was this here or the other thing. And in those moments, the Lord says, yeah, yeah, that's what you think. That's what conventional wisdom says, but I'm asking you to do this other thing. Yes, it looks silly. Yes, it looks counterintuitive. Yes, it is different than what the world tells you should do, but I say you should do it. So now what are you going to do? And that's how we live a life of faith. And so we have to remember that David fought with no armor. Daniel wouldn't eat the good food. Naaman had to dip in the Jordan seven times. Paul had to make tents. Timothy had to be circumcised as an adult. They didn't do those things in order to appear foolish. That's not the end goal. Okay, and there are maybe some corners of Christianity where it seems like the goal is to act foolishly for the sake of looking foolish or, or to put on sort of a, a big show for the world around you. That's, that's not what God's talking about, and that's not what the Bible demonstrates here. But as these individuals followed the Lord, there were times when they were asked to exercise faith and to do something conventional wisdom would never allow or suggest. David fights without armor, but he didn't always fight without armor. He didn't always fight with a sling and stones. Daniel said, I, I can't eat any of this food. Give me pulse. I'll just eat pulse since my stroke. I mean, I was having them before, but since my stroke, like I have these spinach smoothies like every single day. And like sometimes it just seems like pulse, right? And I even have good stuff in there, yummy like blueberries and coconut milk and stuff like that. But Daniel says, you know what? The Lord is asking me to not eat good, healthy food and instead eat really, really lean food while I'm in a competition to see how healthy and plump I can get. And everybody, and man, the people who are into conventional wisdom come to Daniel like, hey man, this is not gonna work. You're gonna eat pulse and I'm gonna get decapitated for it. How about you just go along and you have this sirloin that we made so nice for you, right? 
And, and Daniel said, yeah, I can't do it. And then you get later in the book, and he does eat that stuff. He didn't spend the rest of his life eating pulse. Because later in the book, he talks about how he fasted from, from wine and those sorts of things. And so it, it's, not that they, it's not that every Christian life has to always be the life of John the Baptist, right? You're going to wear camel skin, you're going to live in the dirt, and you're going to eat locusts, have a nice day, right? That's not what God calls every Christian to. He calls some Christians to that, not, maybe not for their whole lives, but for a period of time. But if we look back at our lives and I say, I never had a moment where God asked me to go out without armor. I never had a moment where God asked me to refuse the delicacies and instead do this. I never had a moment where God asked me to die to myself and sacrifice something of myself. I never had a moment where I had to X, Y, or Z when I could have done something easier. Then we are not in common with the heroes of the faith that we love to read about and study and who are given as an example to us about how we're supposed to follow the Lord too. So that's what we're talking about here. Verse 34, good, Laban said, let it be as you have said. That day, Laban removed the streaked and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, everyone that had any white on it and every dark colored one among the lambs. And he placed his sons in charge of them. And he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. Jacob, meanwhile, was shepherding the rest of Laban's flock. Wow. This is not the kind of guy you want to be in partnership with. Laban agrees and then immediately violates the contract. What did Jacob say? He says, let me go through the flock. I'm going to pull these out. Those are going to be my wages. And then moving forward, any others like them will be my wages. Be my wages. Laban says, this is a great idea hang tight real quick and called his sons and is like, go ahead and clean out all of those and head for the hills. And then there won't be any speckled and spotted. It's incredible. What's amazing about Laban is how brazenly he cheats people. Back when he sent Leah to be married instead of Rachel, he did so in front of the whole community at the party, remember, making Jacob a laughing stock. The same thing's happening here. Listen, Jacob is already Laban's shepherd. He knew how many speckled and spotted animals there were in those flocks. He showed up to work the next day. What do you know? They're all gone. Meanwhile, word would have traveled fast that Laban's sons were a few hills away. What do you know? Guarding an all speckled and spotted flock. They're over there. Well, what are they doing over there? Nothing. They're just over there. They decided to, they, they found an all-speckled flock and they decided to go three days away from home for no particular reason. It has nothing to do with that contract that you just inked with your father-in-law. This was incredible, blatant fraud. But for once, Jacob seems to trust the Lord. He puts all of his chips on this dream that God had given him. And he says, you know what? We're going to wait it out. Right now, the odds of me getting a payday are effectively zero, but let's call it a million to one. I want to put all my chips on the million to one shot. And I have got nothing left after that, nothing. And the fate of my family, the fate of my future, it all rides on this. But we see he's finally starting to trust the Lord. And it takes time for little sheepies to be born and grow up and to make a bigger flock. Jacob will wait and work for six years before finally making his move to free himself from Laban's tyranny once and for all. And man, they were six long years. Remember, Jacob 
would effectively have two full-time jobs now, watching his own fledgling flocks and trying to build it up, and then also overseeing Laban's flocks and herds too. And sure, after a while, he would have money to hire servants, we see, but not at first. It's just all him. Uh, and so these, these were long, hard years. And once again, Jacob's 100 years old. I don't think we want to be doing this kind of work uh, on the backside of the desert uh, when we're 100 years old. Verse 37, And Jacob took branches of fresh poplar, almond, and plain wood and peeled the bark, exposing white strips on the branches. He set the peeled branches in the troughs in front of the sheep in the water channels where the sheep came to drink, and the sheep bred when they came to drink. The flocks bred in front of the branches and bore streaked, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face the streaked sheep and the completely dark sheep in Laban's flocks. And then he set his own stock apart, didn't put them with Laban's sheep. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob placed the branches in the troughs in full view of the flocks, and they would breed in front of the branches. As for the weaklings of the flocks, he did not put out the branches. So it turned out that the weak sheep belonged to Laban and the stronger ones to Jacob." So it's hard to know what to make of all of this business. Is Jacob following the science of the day? Is he being superstitious? Or is he obeying what the Lord told him to do? Uh, lots of debate about that. We're simply not given enough information to know for sure. We're never told that God gave him this peeled branches plan in the dream. But of course, there were times in the Bible when the Lord asked people to do strange things as evidence of their faith. Paint blood on your doorposts, strike the ground with a bundle of arrows, gather as many pots you can, start filling them with oil. Scholars seem to be afraid that the Bible is suggesting this as a scientific method for animal husbandry. Uh, I don't think any of us think that. You know, no, none of the 4-H kids here are going to rush out and be like, I need poplar branches, poplar branches. I'll see you at the King's Fair, right? Nobody, none of us think that. The scholars get all Twitterpated about it and, and rush to say, oh, no, the Bible's not suggesting this. Yeah, no, nobody thinks the Bible is suggesting this. Uh, nobody honest, anyway. Others say Jacob knew all about recessive genes and, and how to breed them out, and, and they go into all this depth about this kind of stuff, and that he was using this whole striped branches thing as a fake-out so that when people came and saw what he was doing, they wouldn't realize that he was just, you know, a beautiful mind, animal husbandry genius, like figuring out how to do all this, you know. He's splitting the atom in his cave somewhere, right? And so, so it's a fake out. Other scholars just, they get on Jacob's case and they start scolding him because you're just doing magic, just like Laban was doing magic and you're not, you know, and they're, they're getting all after him. We just don't know what the motivation for the stick thing is right? What we do know is that God was specifically calling Jacob back into a life of faith and, and, and that Jacob was buying into that and that he was willing to stake his future on that. And we know that a life of faith is going to demand a willingness to allow God to direct according to his methods and purposes. And it might take a great amount of time. It might seem very counterintuitive. It might make us wonder why and when. And Lord, isn't there just a simpler, faster way to get done what we both want to get done? But we have to remember that God has called us by name and, and, and he has prepared beforehand a life for us to walk in and to discover. And that it, without faith, it is impossible to please God, the Bible says. 
And so we just don't know. Did God give him this branches thing? We're not told. Is it uh, some kind of pagan ritual? We're not told. Is it the, was that the science of the day? Hey, we've been, we keep getting told over and over again, trust the science. And then the next day, that's not science. Trust the new science. That's not science. Trust this science now, right? So we don't know. And everybody flips out about this section in, in commentaries. And I don't think we need to worry about it that much. Scholars reveal, and I thought this was interesting. Scholars reveal that where we read the word white there, when it says he exposed the white on the branches, the Hebrew term is the word Laban. Now, I think that's interesting. That's what Laban's name means. It means white. Dr. Bruce Waltke writes, as Jacob took over Esau by red stew, of course, Esau means red, so he takes over Laban by white branches. And so the question is this, should Jacob have done this? Should he, should he have done what he did? Uh, it was God's intention for, to build a flock for him, for sure. But what about actively weakening Laban's flock at the same time? Because we have to read this account. We say, okay, not only was he building his own flock, he was actively weakening Laban's flock on purpose at the same time. Certainly, Jacob had an ethical responsibility to do his job well, and his job was not just to build himself a flock, but also to maintain Laban's. There is a divine or an element of divine justice happening here, though, as we've talked about before in Jacob's life is happening with Laban, too. He is reaping what he sowed. Eugene Roop reminds us that in their previous contract, Laban had cheated Jacob, giving him the weaker, unwanted wife. Now the weaker, unwanted flocks are coming back to him, right? And so he is reaping what he sowed. And there is an element of divine justice here. But does that mean, as we look at Jacob as an example, does that mean that we should give ourselves the go-ahead to sort of fight fire with fire out there in the big bad world? My boss did something unethical, so am I, unre- am I released from my own responsibilities in the workplace? Our political leaders lie, cheat, and steal, so does that mean that I get to play that game too? The Bible consistently tells us as Christians to do the opposite that we are to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless them, and even to help them. Not help them do evil, but to treat them as we want to be treated. Theophilus of Antioch, a second century bishop and apologist, wrote this, "'Be it far from Christians to conceive any such deeds, for with them temperance dwells, self-restraint is practiced, monogamy observed, chastity guarded, righteousness exercised, worship performed, God acknowledged, truth governs them, grace guards them, peace screens them, and the Holy Word guides them. From the beginning, God told Abraham that his goal was for this family to be a blessing to the whole world. Yes, enemies would arise. The Lord had said that, but God promised to give them protection and victory to this family of faith. But the point wasn't to be, and it isn't supposed to be us versus them, right? God's greatest desire is for everyone to be us, right? And, and God is going to judge sin. And God says, hey, like, if you will not bow your knee to me, you are my enemy and you will be destroyed. But what is God's heart? What is God's desire? God's desire is for everyone to become part of us, part of his family, part of his church, part of, part of his redemptive plan. 
And so the plan for Abraham's family and the plan for us as Christians has never been to be us versus them. The goal is that the whole world would be blessed and be exposed to the gracious glory of God and shown how they too can be redeemed. So this is a raw deal going sideways, but for us it's a reminder of the calling that we have as we navigate an unbelieving and sometimes hostile world. We're to be a blessing even to the pagans around us, not at the expense of our righteousness or our integrity, but we're to live the kind of lives in our society that makes the Labans around us admit God is obviously with you and we're lucky to have you. Uh, that's that's the, the ideal. That's the goal. And again, that doesn't always happen. You know, persecution happens, opposition can happen, hatred happens, cheating happens. We see that. Jacob's going to be driven out. You know, the, we see what happens to the children of Israel in Egypt, obviously. But the ideal is that we live lives that reflect God's glory and his grace, and it draws the world to the Lord because of it. It doesn't mean we'll always be treated fairly or with respect. Jacob certainly wasn't. But even if we find ourselves under some Laban, we remember who our real master is. And that brings us to our final verse tonight, verse 43. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. God's plan for Abraham's family did include material prosperity. That might not be a part of his plan for your life. But there's something more significant than money going on in this verse. Do you notice that Jacob is not referred to by name here? He is referred to as the man, kind of out of place at first, it seems. It seems less personal when we read it, but there is something lovely going on here. Jacob is being referred to as Ish here, and that means the man. It's also what Adam was called back in Genesis 2. And scholars tell us that that is a word that emphasizes individuality. And here's a quote from one resource. It reflects God's desire to provide man with a companion. We're reminded that God made us in his image. This word brings us back to the garden, brings us back to creation, brings us back to where this all started with Adam and then, and then Abel and then and his son Seth, Adam's son Seth and all of these that, have, that we've been following all of these weeks. And we're brought back to this wonderful work and reminded that God made us in his image. And we're reminded of the value that he places on every single life, Adam's and Jacob's and yours and mine. This was not just about economic success. This was about something very deep. This was about the tender, personal intentions that God has for every single day of his child's life and how most of all, he wanted to be an intimate friend to this individual. He says, you're the ish, you're my individual, you are my friend, you are the one that I have, have, have so many plans for and so much love for and so much care for. You see, to Laban... Jacob was a laborer to be exploited, nothing more. To Esau, Jacob was an enemy to be destroyed. To Leah and Rachel, at least during this period of time, Jacob was little more than a prop or a prize to be fought over. To Isaac, Jacob was the disappointing other son who had supplanted his favorite. But to God, oh, to God, Jacob was treasured and loved unconditionally. God was always there, always watching, always helping, always offering. Sadly, Jacob spent many long years ignoring this God who loved him so much. Instead, he slaved for a master like Laban for 20 years. Meanwhile, look at what kind of a master our Lord is. 
Look at his kindness. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his grace and his generosity and his attentiveness. Look at how he bends heaven and earth and time and space to do exceedingly above what we could ever ask or imagine. So which master do you want to serve? Don't serve Laban, whether it's some Laban in your life or the little Laban that lives inside your human heart and mine. Serve the master who bought you with his own blood, the one who loves you with the same powerful, personal, marvelous love we see here. To follow him and to serve him means to answer his call and walk according to his word and to trust him with your whole life. But if we do that, he won't let us down. He'll never mistreat us. He'll never string us along or deplete us. He's going to do the opposite. While Jacob is being exploited, look at what God is doing for him. While Jacob is legally slaving for Laban, his heart has positioned itself more towards the Lord now. He finally says, okay, I trust the Lord. And now look at what the Lord is able to do. Look at the kind of master our God is. 